It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description on Linktree. This week's episode, The Falcon Lake UFO Incident. All right, this is a good one, guys. Hell yeah, it is. It's a very famous experience, or uh, incident, rather. Yeah, as far as UFO cases go, this is a prominent one, and it's particularly in Canada where it happened. So let's get into it. We're talking about an event that happened on May 20th, 1967, in or at Falcon Lake in the White Shell Provincial Park area of Manitoba, Canada. Manitoba. And this occurred around 12, or well, specifically 12.13 p.m. is what I saw. Interestingly enough, I did see some accounts that said it happened on May 21st, 21st. So there is a little bit of a discrepancy there. But May 20, May 21st, 1967, one of those days. <laughs> some people have called this Canada's best documented UFO case. Hell yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so famous that, the, what was it, in 2018, uh, uh, the Canadian uh, government minted a coin, like a commemoration coin yeah. for it, right? I think it's 2018. Yeah. And it glows in the dark. And it's so that's cool. That's pretty damn cool. I was like, dude, I'm going to oh, buy yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that. I'm going to buy one of these for sure. I'm going to go buy one of these. And I looked it up. I found it on eBay for $1,200. <laughs> so oh, wow. I'm not actually going to buy one because, you know, $1,200. So, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a little rich for my blood. Yeah, yeah. For, it's, it's a one ounce silver coin. And I looked it up and one ounce of silver goes for $25. So... Yeah, I'm I'm not seeing the value there, but look it up. It's a really awesome looking coin. And uh, they have a couple other ones that are in this this sort of series of strange events. What is it? Unsolved Unsolved Phenomena in Canada series or something. There's a few of them. Mm-hmm. And they're not all that expensive. This might have I think this might have been the first one they released and it was the smallest think, number yeah. that they printed, and that might be why it's so expensive because it's the oldest one, you know, I don't know. But I saw there's a few other ones that are not quite as expensive until, of course, you know, everybody hears this and they're going to r- go run and buy them. And then I won't get a chance to go buy them because they'll all be bought up. They, all of them were a limited run. Uh, I think the biggest one that I saw anyways was 7,500 coins, which sounds like a lot. But if you consider, you know, anybody in the world could buy them, all the collectors out there, 7,500, it's not that much, you know? It's not much. Yeah, not much. No. I mean, I don't know how many people are interested in this type but of thing, but... You can, I don't know. I'm I on the fence about it. I saw them for... They go for like 120, 130, something like that. So yeah. I'm not 100% sure I'm going to pay that much for a little coin. I really want yeah. to, though. I mean, I really want to. They, they are so cool looking. Of course, if you're yeah, a nerd yeah. like me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've never really been into coin collecting and stuff. Like, you know, like, like for example, like people collect stamps and stuff, you know? Like, yeah, I get it. Like, you know, you, you got to be into something, right? But I don't know. Like, I, I could definitely see some people who are really into uh, coin collecting, though, like spending the money on that, you know, because it's, it's a, a pretty unique one. Right. It's, yeah, it's really cool. All right. Well, this topic was chosen by... Our Discord, not our Discord people, dang it, I always do that, <laughs> I always do that. This topic was chosen by Patreon. We have three different levels. The first level gets you early access and after hours. The second level gets you bonus content. And the third level allows you to vote on upcoming topics. That's right, you get to help us choose what we're going to do next. And that's what happened for this topic. This is what they chose out of three different topics. I forget what the other ones were, but... They're all good. I chose them, so they had to have been good, right? (laughs) So yeah, if you want to support the show on Patreon and you also want to help us choose our topics, that's the way to do it. Uh, You can find the link in the description, or if I don't put the Patreon link specifically, it's definitely under our link tree, so you can find it there. 
Okay, well, let's get into this week's case. Oh, and speaking of cases, next week, let's see, the 21st, 20th, yeah, next week we may have a special guest. So it looks like that's going to happen unless it falls through. So we'll we'll wait and see. Um, did you get my text earlier, ETA? I did, yes. Yeah, yeah. So they should be sending you a screener copy of the movie so you can watch it and then we can have a little chat. So that'll be fun. That'll be next week. So unfortunately people won't vote for next week's topic because it will be an interview, but maybe I'll put on a little vote to see what the bonus episode will be. I don't know. This week's bonus episode was uh SETI part two, because we finished that one went like really, really late and we, I didn't get to finish all my notes. So I finished up my notes, recorded that and put that out for our bonus episode this week. All right, let's get into this week's topic. The Falcon Lake UFO incident. Okay, so we're talking about a dude named Stephen Michalak, M-I-C-H-A-L-A-K, or Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N, yeah. So Stefan Michalak, who was an industrial mechanic and also an amateur geologist. I'm guessing an industrial mechanic works on, you know, machines and stuff rather than cars. That's what that sounds like. What do you think, ETA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have to assume that. And everything that I... um I uh, read and stuff. It was a. Uh, it didn't really go too deep into what exactly he did, but yeah, I have to assume that he probably works on machinery and stuff because um, he worked at a uh, a concrete plant, right? I think is that what it said? Yeah. Oh, did he? I didn't see that. So I mean, lots of machinery. Yeah, there's a, lots of machinery involved there in an operation like that. So a lot of maintenance that needs to be done. So yeah, it's a yeah. Yeah. One of his hobbies, well, his his hobby apparently that he did all the time when he wasn't at work pretty much was geology. So he liked looking for like quartz and silver and looking for gold deposits and all that good stuff. So minerals and things like that. That was pretty much what he did on the weekends. And he had actually staked a That's claim a hobby, in the know? Falcon Lake area. So in May of 1967... He went there to prospect on the claim and look for anything of value or anything of interest, I suppose. When he was there looking at stuff, he was looking at a quartz vein. He was startled by the sound of a flock of geese. They were they started honking and making a whole bunch of noise. So he looked up and to see what was agitating them. He saw two red glowing objects approaching at a high speed. They came to a stop and hovered 150 feet away, 15 feet off the ground. He said that they were cigarette-shaped with humps in the middle. One of them sat down on the ground, lowered down to the ground, and as it did so, it blew leaves, lichen, dust, and whatever else was on the ground. It blew that out of the way. So it sort of had like a downward air current, apparently. as, As it landed, it blew that stuff out of the way. And Stefan at this point was crouching behind a bush because he was looking at a rock or a quartz vein or whatever it was he was looking at. He was out of sight of the UFO when it landed. The second craft was still in the air. It hovered for a few seconds and then it flew off and disappeared, flew off at a high speed. His, his first inclination was that these craft were experimental American craft. And that's something that he actually maintained until he passed away, I think in 1999, he never thought that this was an alien encounter. He always thought that this was some sort of experimental craft, Mm -hmm. but anyways, the craft landed and he sketched it. I guess he had, you know, paper and pencil with him. So he sketched the object while it was on the ground for about 25, 30 minutes or so. It just sat there kind of radiating heat while it was in the air. It was glowing like a red, but on the ground, it looked closer to stainless steel. After he sketched it and about 25 to 30 minutes passed, a square door with rounded edges opened on the side of the craft. A fantastic purple light shone, sh- uh, shone? I think that's, yeah, shined. Well, I don't know, whichever. <laughs> yeah, whichever comes first. Yeah, shined out of the opening. He had welding glasses on him or welding goggles because he used those as safety glasses Now, that may seem ridiculous, but he had the kind that flip up, so it's not like super dark all the time. You could flip them up and flip them down as you needed because, you know, when you're welding, welding is very, very bright, like really bright. So you need 
sunglasses or shades or something to block the light that are so dark that you can't actually see out of them (laughs) while they're down. But you also need to set up your jobs that you're doing. So most of them either have a way of flipping up the the dark part or they turn dark automatically or something like that. So you can see Mm -hmm. when you're not welding because you have to see what you're working on in order to set it up before you weld it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's the kind of uh, welding goggles that I have are the self-adjusting ones that automatically like turn dark when when, uh, you start welding. Yeah. Those are supposed to be the ones to get. Uh, I've I've tinkered with welding a little bit before and we never used that one. So we just... We just had the dummy ones. You'd have to take off your head and put it back on your head when you were ready to weld, <laughs> which made mm-hmm. it kind of difficult, actually. But, you know, especially with stick welding. Stick welding was pretty difficult. But anyways, um, that's a whole other thing. So he, that's that's one detail that I looked up because at first when I saw that, I was like, huh, why would somebody out there prospecting for rocks have welding goggles? That doesn't make any damn sense at all. Mm-hmm. But that's why he was using them as safety goggles, which I guess, you know, if it works, it works. So he, uh, so anyways, he used those for chipping at rocks. Now he saw when the door opened, he, he, uh, it was, he saw, um, a fantastic purple light shining out of the opening. I think I already said that he put his welding goggles <coughs> down because it was very bright. And after he put his goggles down, he saw that there was a flashing red, green, and blue lights inside of the craft and he saw like a beam of light in there, but he couldn't tell if the lights were on like a panel or what. He wasn't sure where they were coming from. He just saw like really, really bright lights from inside of there. And that would have to, I mean, you'd have to assume that those lights are, they're going to have to be really, really freaking bright. Not just like a bright like bulb or something like that or a flashlight. Like, because if you can see, like, like we were talking about, those welding uh, goggles are, are pretty damn dark. They tend to be. So if you can see that kind of detail, then... That must have been quite quite the bright light that was coming out from inside that craft. Yeah. If you put welding goggles on and look at a regular light bulb, you probably won't see it at all, or maybe you'll see it very, very faintly. But you're pretty much completely mm-hmm. blind. So as ETA said, yeah, that must have been really bright. All right. As this was, so as this was happening, he also heard a high-pitched whining sound like a motor running at a high speed. He also smelled what he described as the smell of a burning electrical motor. He heard a whooshing sound. Didn't he also describe a sul- sulfur also? Smell yeah. Like sulfur? Yeah, that was later on, oh, a few a few moments later when he approached the craft. Was, yeah, it's, uh, it also smelled like okay. sulfur, yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. I got a little, little head there. My bad. Yeah. Oh, it's all good. He also heard a whooshing sound like air was being taken in and expelled from the craft. So what does this kind of sound like? I mean, mechanical problems, maybe? I don't know. It it sounds unusual, for sure. So at this point, he approached the craft, and he heard uh, two voices coming out of the craft, and they sound sort of um, like they were mumbly or something. He couldn't really tell what they were saying. But he did say that they sounded like they were human voices and one of them was higher in pitch than the other. Now, when he got close to the craft, he noticed that there were no insignias or anything like that on the craft. He looked because he was looking for any sort of identification to see, okay, is this American? Is this Canadian? What is this thing? So he didn't see any of those at all. It was just completely smooth and completely blank. The surface of the craft itself didn't have any seams at all. And it looked sort of smooth, like colored glass. So it was like really smooth, really, really smooth. The craft itself, he said, was about 34 feet long and 15 feet high. And while it was on the ground, it changed color between red and gray. And when it was red, he said it looked similar to glowing hot stainless steel. Okay, so that's that's kind of a weird detail. And it's, you know, maybe we'll get into it discuss a little bit more, but, um, as far as I'm aware, we didn't have any craft in the sixties that did that. (laughs) And we still don't today (laughs) that I'm aware of anyways. There was supposedly also a golden glow around the object. Then, um, sulfur. Yeah. We already mentioned the sulfur that he smelled. He heard the voices like, like I said, and when he was closer, Um, he, so he thought that the, this was, like I said, an American experimental vehicle. 
And when he got closer, he asked them if they needed any help because he, he experienced that they, or he assumed that they had been experiencing mechanical problems. And he said, Hey, Yankee boys, do you need help? He has, he, mm-hmm. apparently he was Polish and he had emigrated yeah, born in Poland. and he had a very thick accent. So I don't really have a Polish accent. I wish I did to say, Hey, Yankee boys, do you need help? But I, yeah, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not good at accents to begin with. <laughs> yeah, me neither. After he called out to whoever was inside, the voices stopped, and then he tried to say hello in several different languages. He tried Russian, Polish, and German, but there was no response. The sound of the motor or the mechanic, you know, the, the whirring sound or whatever it was, stopped at this point. He heard the voices again briefly, and then the door closed, moving outwards to seal off the opening. And after it closed, there was no seam or any evidence that a door had been there. It was just completely smooth like the rest of the UFO or craft or whatever you want to call it. He touched it at this point. He was wearing gloves and he touched it. It was so hot that the surface melted the rubber fingertips of his canvas gloves, or I guess just glove, just one hand. He only touched it with one hand, apparently. At this point, the UFO turned counterclockwise and a grid of holes shot out heated gas that hit Stefan, blowing him backwards and to the left and burning him. He was also burned on his face and his body. His clothes also caught fire. He tore off the burning clothes as the craft flew off. So just imagine that. He's (laughs) standing there. He touches the craft. It rotates counterclockwise and boom, blasts Mm -hmm. him with some exhaust. He catches on fire. And, uh, then, you know, he, he pulls off his clothes or at least his upper clothes, I guess it didn't look like his pants were on fire, (laughs) but just his shirt, I think. So he takes that off and the thing flies off. And that was basically the encounter. That's pretty much what happened. But Mm -hmm. this encounter is really interesting because it's one of the very few cases where we have actual physical evidence rather than just a witness account or maybe a blurry photograph or something. So after this, he felt nauseous. Stefan felt nauseous and threw up several times. When he was trying to hike back to his hotel, he checked his compass to help guide him, but the compass was going haywire, spinning around and around, so it was basically useless. Eventually, he made it back to his hotel room at the Falcon Motor Hotel. Now, there's different accounts of this, of what happened, but um, some people, some accounts say that he contacted the RCMP. Other accounts say that he just encountered a police officer on the way back to his hotel room. But that would be it. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that's their police force. That's what they're called, the RCMP. So he met up at some point with a constable, G.A. Solotki. And this is where we get our a big conflict in the narrative. The officer says that Stefan looked like he was drunk. He was kind of stumbling around. He was kind of discombobulated. And this is what Stefan says too. He says that he was disoriented after the encounter, but the officer says he thought that he was drunk. He asked Stefan if he needed any help and noted in his report that Stefan did not smell of alcohol. Stefan declined the help, according to the officer. But according to Stefan, he asked the officer for help, but the officer was dismissive and refused to help him. This is something that a lot of skeptics will latch on to, to basically say that this whole event was caused by hallucinations from drinking alcohol. I did not know you can hallucinate from drinking alcohol. I know. This is, they like to bring this one out and dust it off on every occasion or on on certain occasions. And, um, you know, I'm drinking a beer right now and I would love to know what kind of beer gives you hallucinations, (laughs) you know, (laughs) what you drinking. I am drinking some Sierra Nevada torpedo extra IPA. Oh, I was expecting some Pliny, but you know, nah, I just, you know, I just went to the good old grocery store that's right around the corner from my house. 
the Pliny, I have to drive down to um, Whole Foods, which is a little, it's like, I don't know, a mile. It's not far. It's like a mile or two down the road. But the the one next to me, it's a Safeway. I can just walk there if I want. So that's what mm-hmm. I did. I walked there and uh, they had some Sierra Nevada. It was actually on sale. It was uh, about 12 bucks for a 12 pack, which I haven't oh. seen a 12 pack for 12 bucks, especially a premium beer like Sierra Nevada. I haven't seen mm-hmm. that in years. So of course I had I to know, buy right? it. Um, yeah, yeah. If I it wasn't, what is it? The, the pale ale? Well, it was a variety pack. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. So yeah, I had, had some of the pale ale in there, which is a really excellent beer, but it also had, um, some other things like a torpedo extra IPA, which I'm having now. And I also have a Dankful IPA, seriously hoppy, ready to go in case the uh, oh. torpedo runs out during the episode. <laughs> nice. But it's pretty good stuff. You know, this is not an advertisement, by the way. This is not product placement. I am legitimately drinking that. <laughs> yeah, normally, yeah I, I'm so- normally I score some Pliny, but in this case, I was just too lazy to drive down there. What do you, are you having anything yeah. ETA? I'm sipping on a Boston Lager, a little bit of the old Sam Adams, you know? Oh, that's good stuff. You can't go wrong with a Boston Lager. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mom's over uh, visiting, so she stopped by the store and picked up a couple 12-packs there. Ah, pretty sweet. I see she's listening in there. I yeah. wonder if she's getting some sort of echo from... But then she probably doesn't hear me on your computer because probably it's going through the headphones, so it's probably fine. Yeah, yeah. I have headsets. Yeah. Are you hearing any kind of echo or anything? Only. only yeah, she says only, only from me because obviously she can uh, yeah. uh, somewhat hear me. We're in the same room. Then, yeah, so. she's in the same room. All right, well... Welcome to the show, Agent Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get back to it. So I can see that. All right. Let's just picture the scenario from, you know, the police officer's perspective. He sees somebody that looks drunk and they kind of wander over to him and say, oh, I need help officer. And the officer is like, ah, another one of these drunk assholes. He's like, fuck yeah, off, eh? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Is oh, fuck. you know, yeah, the way you said it's probably a lot more yeah. <laughs> accurate. Kick, yeah, kick rocks, off, eh? eh? You don't need my help. Or that's a, that's not that good of a Canadian accent. I can do better, but I don't know, whatever. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I imagine that that's what the police officer did. But then when the whole thing blew up later, he was kind of like, oh, shit, this is not what I thought it was. This was not just your rando drunk hit vagrant. Because you got to think he, <clears throat> his clothes are burned, so he took them off. So he's walking around shirtless. Drunk, looks shirtless, looks like he's drunk, and he goes up to a police officer, discombobulated, and the police officer, you know, he probably has vomit all over his face because he <laughs> threw up a few times on the way here, and uh-huh. uh, he looks like shit. And so the police officer is probably being very dismissive, but later on when it hit the, the national news, he was like, oh, crap, that's that's not a good look. I better put it in my report that that's not what happened. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but... Um, the physical evidence does support what Stefan claims and there's very little or no evidence to suggest that he was drunk. The only thing I found was that people interviewing in the area, somebody interviewed like a local bar and some, the bartender said that the previous evening Stefan had like five beers or something. So, I don't know, maybe Canadian beer is like really, really, really strong, (laughs) but if you have five beers the previous evening, chances are you're not even going to be hung over. You're definitely not going to be drunk the following day. And they went to the area pretty quickly and nobody noticed anything in the area that would suggest alcohol consumption. No empty bottles, no bottle caps, nothing like that. So there's no evidence that he was drunk other than he was sort of discombobulated. So that's that. And we don't know to this day, you know, one of them is lying and we don't know who that is. And, uh, I, I lean towards the police officer and I don't blame him by the way, because if he has to deal with drunk people all the time, he's going to be like, all right, another one, he's drunk assholes, you know, so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But I suspect that that police officer was dismissive of him and took him as a drunk person. That's what I suspect, but yeah. we don't know for sure. 
Well, it's it's reasonable to to assume that because I mean, how the hell are you know? Obviously, like you know, I, I don't believe in psychics, but you know, like uh, obviously the dude was most likely not psychic. So how the hell would you uh, look at somebody and like like you know without them telling you or, or claiming it, what have you? How would you know, right? There's, right? there's no way to know. Yeah, you know. So after he encountered the police officer, he went back to his hotel room and asked the hotel owner about seeing a doctor. But apparently the local doctor was out of town or not there at the moment. So he proceeded to phone his wife and tell her that there had been an accident, and then he went home on a Greyhound bus. I guess he didn't drive there. Or maybe if he did drive there, he was too messed up to actually drive himself home. I'm not sure. After he got home, he went to the Misericordia Health Center. M-I-S-E-R-I-C-O-R-D-I-A. Misericordia. Misericordia, I, I guess that's a I, very unusual uh, word. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm looking at the word right now, and I'm just not going to try. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Miserlou, that surf guitar song, because <laughs> it's Miser oh. is the first part of it. Anyways, Ms. Miser I Cordia Health Center emergency room. Uh, after he went home, he went there. He was sort of afraid of telling the doctor that he was injured by a UFO. So instead he was said that he was burned by aircraft exhaust. And you know, you've, you've talked to doctors before. Like I had this knee problem right where, where my knee would hurt, but only under very specific conditions. Like if I went jogging and like I saw, I think I saw like four doctors before I finally saw a surgeon who said, okay, no, no, you just need physical therapy. That's all it is. But like, for example, I saw one doctor who I said, hi, doctor, I have knee pain, but he's like, okay, knee pain, arthritis, boom, get out of here. I'm like, whoa, hold on, hold on. It's not arthritis. <laughs> like, hold on. I'm only like 28 years old. It's not arthritis, but he, you know, he just was like, okay, boom, you're out of here. So doctors, I imagine if you went in and told them, Hey, I was injured by a UFO. They'd be, they would just laugh you out of the ER. They'd be like, mm -hmm. ha ha ha, get the fuck out of here, buddy. You know, <laughs> this mm -hmm. ain't April 1st. Nice prank. Get out of here. Kick rocks, eh? <laughs> so he, um, he said that it was aircraft exhaust. He had his injuries were he had burns on his chest and stomach area in a grid pattern that matched the grid exhaust on the UFO. And he also, like I said, he had burns on other parts of his body, a little bit on his face and his legs, but that the worst was on his, on his chest and stomach area. Now he also experienced health effects that were long-term that wasn't just immediate, but it stayed with him apparently for the rest of his life off and on, but he had diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, and weight loss. And, and his wife noticed these things right away that there's something wrong with him. Apparently, over the first few days, he was unable to keep any sort of food down for about four days. So he tried to eat anything. He would just immediately throw it up. And after that, when he ate something, it went right through him, he said. So he'd just eat it and he'd crap it right back out. So he was not able to really get any nutrition into him for a long time. And in the first few weeks, he lost a total of about 22 pounds he was so sick. That's a lot of weight to lose, that poor guy. That sucks. Oh, yeah. In a short period of time, too. Yeah. And if you see this guy in interviews, he's not like a huge, huge person. Like, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, like obese necessarily, but if I lost 22 pounds, it'd probably be a healthy thing. <laughs> but looking at pictures and in your interviews with this guy, I'm like, yeah, this guy doesn't have, may not have 22 pounds to lose, at least not being healthy anyways. He, he's not a huge mm -hmm. dude, you know? His son was also a witness and said that when Stefan got home, he stank of sulfur. And he said this, it was as if the smell was coming from inside of him. It was like emanating from him, which is sort of, sort of weird. The doctors, hmm. the local doctors were really unable to determine what the cause of this was and why, what his illness was from. They basically just diagnosed him with burns which is not super helpful when he's having all these other symptoms. So he eventually, I think in 1968, he went to the Mayo Clinic to seek help. They determined that he was of sound mind, so he wasn't insane, apparently, and that his symptoms were consistent with radiation poisoning, which is pretty scary if you think about it. Now, yeah. some people will say that in order to have symptoms this severe, 
radiation poisoning would basically kill you. But on the other hand, we don't know every type of radiation there is, and we haven't experimented, you know, on people a whole lot to see what radiation would do to them. We, we have a little bit. We definitely have to a degree, but it's possible that we don't know the full extent of what different types of radiation can do to a person. So I think that it's definitely possible that he was suffering some kind of radiation sickness. I mean, who knows? Tests revealed that his white blood cell count dropped so much that it was borderline lethal. And I guess they looked at his bone marrow and there was a bunch of dead cells in there and stuff, which is kind of scary, kind of creepy, but also somewhat consistent from what I understand with radiation poisoning. If you get irradiated, I think that hurts or can possibly kill your bone marrow from what I understand. But I don't know. What do I know? I am not a radiation scientist. Throughout his life, his burns reappeared off and on, and his the symptoms came back off and on as well. And yeah, until all the way until he passed away in 1999. So he never really escaped this stuff. Oh, and he was, I forget his exact age, but he was in his early 50s when this happened. So he was not a young man when this happened. He was already a little on the older side. So he did live to have a nice long life. So this apparently didn't really shorten his lifespan much or at all, which is kind of cool, I guess. But Mm -hmm. all right, now backing up a little bit here in the narrative, he eventually reported his story to the Winnipeg Tribune. I don't know exactly when he did that, but it, it didn't take too long. And he also wrote a book or manuscript about his encounter titled My Encounter with the UFO. It was published in 1967 in Polish and translated to English by Paul uh, Pichin, P-I-H-I-C-H-Y-N. Wow, what is with all these goofy names? <laughs> but I well, looked for this online. Does. Yeah. I was just saying from our perspective, it's goofy, but yeah, it's all relative, I suppose, (laughs) but I looked it up online. I could, I found information about it. It was apparently 40 pages. So it was like a little pamphlet and I think it had pictures and stuff in it, but I couldn't find an actual copy of it anywhere. This is probably one of the rare, one of the rare texts you can find in ufology. So I don't think there's that many of them out there. But then again, it's not like I spent that long looking for it. But he said that he published that book not to make money. And I did find find some newspaper articles that were mentioning that he was selling the book and he was selling it for like a dollar. So it's not like, it's not like he was selling it for a bunch of money, you know, Mm. and he, him and his family were harassed by people and his kid was like bullied at school. So he said that he published this little pamphlet to give people the information they want so that maybe they would stop harassing him and his family. I don't know if that worked or not, but that's Hmm. why he said he did it. That makes sense. Yeah. The incident hit the national news and it was uh, even ufologists and the, you know, the UFO crowd in America was aware of it. Although this incident, as far as I'm aware, didn't really go international like some of the other prominent incidents have over the years. But people heard about it, and a lot of different people investigated the incident. It was investigated by various government entities like the Royal Canadian Air Force, the Department of Health, the Department of National Defense, the RCMP, and other government agencies. And it was also investigated by civilian UFO organizations. So a lot of people, a lot of people looked over this thing. They also went to the area as part of their investigations. They went to the area where the encounter occurred to search for physical evidence. And they found it. They found a 15 foot circle of burned vegetation, 15 foot. No, I think it was 15 meter. I might have that wrong. I think it might've been like a 30 foot, but whatever. They found a circle of burned vegetation where he said the encounter took place. They also took soil samples and they tested them and they showed radiation. And Stefan's clothes were also tested and those showed radiation as well. So Mm. that's kind of interesting. They also found, like a year later actually, I think Stefan himself found this. Stefan and a friend went there to look at the area and sort of investigate for themselves. 
And while they were there, they were sort of testing stuff with a um, with a Geiger counter, and they found metal underground that it looked like it had dripped down and melted into cracks in the rock. This metal was also radioactive. It was apparently a rare type of silver alloy that was coated in radium and uranium. They found three sort of hmm. twisted pieces that were kind of bent and then lots of little tiny pieces too. And they collected them and put them in a jar. So that's a little bit of an interesting detail, but skeptics say that this metal was planted after the fact. And I think that's a possibility. We don't know for sure that it wasn't. And you might think that, you know, they would have found it sooner than this, especially because they were going all over the place with Geiger counters, taking samples and that sort of a thing. So I think it's plausible that somebody planted it to sort of hype up the story, maybe even Stefan, Stefan himself. But on the other hand, if they were going to plant metal, would they bury it? Because you're unlikely to find it if it's buried, right? Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. It's mm. a weird one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely weird. I think it, uh, if you were trying to put like layers upon your deception, you know what I mean? Then maybe quite possibly, you know, that, that maybe somebody from their perspective might have uh, thought that, Oh, you know, if we bury it and we say that we found it underground then maybe, you know, it might, you know, look more, more legit, I guess you could say. Yeah. This would be, <laughs> this would be quite the event to hoax. So I'm thinking, wow, what would he do? He would have, maybe bring a blowtorch of some kind with him and a piece of metal with holes in it and then like torch himself <laughs> and then set his mm -hmm. clothes on fire. Cause we still have his clothes. I mean, I don't, they're yeah. at the university of Manitoba, but this would be one hell of a too. hoax, wouldn't it? I think so. Yeah. And also like the burn marks, the, the, he had those circular, uh, the grid pattern that was on his uh, chest and stomach. Um, I, 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 you definitely could, you know, burn yourself like that, you know, but like, why, like, why, you know, I, I, I wouldn't understand why you'd want to do that unless, cause one of the, one of the explanations that people have came up with it are, so this guy had, had a claim, right. He was a, a, a prospect or what have you. And, uh, maybe he was just going to extremely long lengths to get people not to come over to his claim or, you know, to not bother yeah. his claim or whatever the area he's working in. But unfortunately for, you know, if that, if that was his uh, plan there, then it really backfired because once people caught wind of the, the story, then, you know, there's a lot more people that started going over to that lake. And that lake was already a very popular like destination for outdoorsmen's and, you know, people who just like, like the outdoors and stuff. So it's not like that place was like, like extremely remote and the, like people never went there. You know, it was, it was a popular area somewhat. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's. Yeah, I don't I don't understand that uh I don't accept I don't accept that explanation, I guess you could say. No, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that is one of the skeptical explanations, but there's not a UFO case I can think of where something happened and then less people went to that area. It's always more people. Always mm -hmm. more people. So mm -hmm. yeah, that one doesn't make any sense to me either. I think it's a pretty weak sauce explanation as far as they go. I think the hallucinations via alcohol makes more sense than that. And even that doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> you know, I had, yeah. I had five beers and I started seeing UFOs and they burned me too. You know, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. If he was hallucinating, how did he get burned? A campfire? Campfires don't burn you like that. And there was no campfire that they found in the area. At least not that I saw. I don't know. It's a weird one as far as that goes. But, oh yeah. So the area, under the area, they found um, a vein of radium and they say that that is what caused all of the radiation, but it doesn't explain why his clothes were also radioactive and it doesn't explain why that silver metal was covered in uranium. Apparently it, I don't know. It, and is radium really like that radioactive? It would have had to have been like a really big deposit, right? I don't or know. very concentrated. Yeah. I'm not sure about that one. I don't know much about radium, but that explanation, I think, may explain some of the radiation, but maybe not all of the radiation. But who knows? I don't know. So like we were saying, there are there are some 
skeptical explanations, some of which we've talked about. For example, hallucination by alcohol, which is, you know, it, like I just said, it's it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't explain. It's, re- it's Halluc- ridiculous. Hallucinations don't set your clothes on fire, you know. <laughs> no matter how mm. real they seem, they're they're just hallucinations, uh, um, and they don't irradiate the ground, and they don't they don't burn a circle of vegetation and all that sort of stuff. It just that explanation is just completely silly. It doesn't make any sense at all. And they like to say that he was drunk and that explains it all, but I don't, I just don't, I'm not seeing it. Um, another, I agree. another one. Okay. So another one that they proposed was that the, the burns were actually an allergic reaction. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that something like a, like a offshoot of like spontaneous combustion? You just yeah. didn't fully spontaneous <laughs> combust? Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> How allergic do you have to be to set your clothes on fire? Sounds reasonable. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, we mm-hmm. have the physical evidence. We have his clothes. They're still out there and they're burned. And I don't know if they still have the glove, but I've seen pictures of it. So they had the melted glove at one point or other. And mm. what kind of what kind of allergy is that, man? Is that just how bad allergies are in Canada? Maybe I never want to visit there. You know. <laughs> Yeah, some pretty damn strong pollen. Yeah. You know? It's beautiful there, man. I saw pictures when I was looking at this case, but I guess it's not worth going if you're going to catch on fire from the allergies. Holy crap. (laughs) Okay, we talked about that one to discourage competitors. Um, Yeah, so there's the physical evidence is pretty fascinating. You can Google it and find pictures of it. And... There's a couple of things that sort of caught my attention. So his shirt that they have a, they have a shirt that he was wearing. It looks like, you know, your typical wife beater. And the interesting thing about the shirt is that it does have the grid pattern burned onto the shirt, but it's not burned through the shirt. It didn't look burned through the shirt. It just looked like imprinted on the shirt and on the shirt, it was higher up than it is on his body, right? And hmm. the circles were smaller. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe he was like leaning over a little bit and let's say this was like a jet of radiation and it spread out as it traveled. So if it was in like a cone shape, that could explain why it would be smaller on his shirt. And if he was leaning over and the shirt was like sort of baggy and it was draping off of him and it wasn't like on his skin, that could explain, you know, why the holes were higher up as well. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. This is a, a or maybe it, it hit him at like at a weird angle, like along with what you just said as well. I mean, yeah, weird stuff happens, you know. Yeah, that's one. Especially possi- in this case, that's one possibility. This is the one piece of evidence that kind of makes me think maybe it is a hoax. But like we said earlier, this would be one hell of a way to hoax a UFO sighting. There are way easier ways of hoaxing it. Like he could have burned that circle in the vegetation and not burned himself. Like (laughs) that's, that's Mm -hmm. going a little far. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he was doing it for realism or something. I don't know. I just, it seems like a bit much to hoax something, but then again, the shirt pattern doesn't seem to match the pattern on his body. And there's, I mean, there's explanations for that maybe, but it's also an interesting detail that kind of makes you wonder, I don't know. I mean, it could be, could be anything. He was the only witness to this particular event. As far as I could tell, um, I didn't, I did not see any, um, any witnesses that came forward that also saw similar, similar craft that, that day <clears throat> in that area, but who knows? You can also find pictures of the pieces of molten metal. They don't look that exciting. They just look like pieces of molten metal. Now, there were other encounters around this time that did have certain similarities to this encounter. And I only I only notated one of them because I didn't want to go on and on and on. But if you look into it, you can see a lot of similar encounters around this time frame. And in general, in 1966 and 1967 was a full-blown UFO flap. And even, you know, especially in Canada, I guess they said, which I didn't look up all the UFO encounters in 67, but looking at the, um, the blue book files, for instance, 
66 was a pretty heavy year for UFO sightings, and 67 was as well, although it seemed to have died down a little bit at that point, if I remember correctly. But anyways, there was a full-blown flap taking place, and there are sightings with similarities. For example, in Joplin, Missouri, on March 25th, 1967, two reporters for the Globe, the, the Joplin Globe, were traveling west on Highway 10C, when they saw ten or ten, when they saw three pale red glowing objects with a dome shape on top and flat on the bottom, hovering above the road, they saw light coming out of windows that were around the circumference of the domes. The UFOs were stationary for two or three minutes, and then they moved off quickly to the west. As they moved, a fourth object joined them in formation before they disappeared in the distance, and. This sighting is interesting. It's not exactly the same as far as the way the crafts are described, but they were glowing red and it does seem to have that in common and the shape of the crafts were common in common as well. I don't think, I don't know if I mentioned, but Stefan said that when he got closer to the craft, when they are on the ground, they resembled your typical flying saucer shape. And that's what this one sounds like as well. And I've seen this before with many, many cases where there, it's not unusual for them to, if somebody sees a case or a UFO in Canada, people will see that similar thing all over the world, not just in a region, you know? And it makes sense if you think about it, if they can get here from wherever they're coming from, light years away, you know, if they come here, they're not going to look at just Manitoba. They're probably going to survey the entire planet and people all oh, over yeah. the place are going to see them. Absolutely. Makes sense. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought you, I thought you were saying something there, ETA. Mm -mm. Oh, okay. All right. So we already talked about the uh, Canadian government releasing, or I guess the Canadian mint releasing a $20 coin to commemorate this event and some other ones. So I won't talk too much about that. Um, yeah. 4,000 of those for this event for the Falcon Lake, uh, there was 4,000 coins for Falcon Lake. And like I said, they're very expensive now. They've gone up in value. <laughs> yeah, I would, um, I would love to get my hands on one of those, but yeah, too much. Yeah. And uh, I guess the last thing I have is that there is a Falcon Beach Ranch that offers tours of the area where the encounter occurred. I'm not sure if there's really anything left of the encounter there. There, you know, the burned vegetation is certainly recovered by now. But it would still be really cool to go and visit. And it's certainly a beautiful place if you're looking for mm -hmm. a vacation where a UFO happened. Watch out for that radium, though. I mean, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, so that's that's pretty much all the notes I had for this one. Um, I guess uh, any final thoughts on this one, Agent ETA? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, as far as like uh, believability, uh, I guess, you know, you kind of have to, uh, there's a lot you're going to have to believe in order to, think that this is like a, a truthful event or whatever. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about it to be, I, I want to believe that this happened. Um, and like, it seems like there, there is some, some decent, uh, you know, proof out there, some actual tangible proof, but you still, I mean, you don't know exactly like, all right, so could it have been hoaxed? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. But the one thing that kind of like, uh, makes me kind of pause a little bit and think about it is, is like the, uh, you know, the birds on his body. And there's, you, know, you can look at pictures of these. I think I, I think you probably mentioned that earlier, but uh, I just don't know why you would do that to yourself. I mean, shit. I mean, I'm plenty of people have done crazier things. There's no doubt about that. I'm not saying this is like too crazy not to have been hoaxed, but I just don't see why. You know, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, especially if he was trying to uh, get like you know competitors uh, from the area that were also like prospectors too to not go to his his uh, his claim. You know. Like we were saying before, just that doesn't make sense. But even that one, like that, you know, it makes more sense than like, like, you know, alcohol and, you know, hallucinations and stuff. And, but I still don't, I don't believe it, to be honest, you know. So I think he may have seen something, you know. I mean, the, uh, the, the UFO fan in me wants to believe that he saw, you know, something. And, and the fact that he, you know, says that he heard like muffled voices talking from inside the craft and, they definitely sounded like human. I don't think, you know, you would, you're probably not going to mistake. Uh, who knows what aliens uh, sound like? And I do believe that there really are aliens out there somewhere in the universe. Um, maybe here too, but 
you, you know, if you if you hear people talking, it's pretty distinct. You know, your brain's going to recognize that, and, and whether you recognize the, the the language or not, you know, I don't think that's something you're really going to mistake. You know, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, the the uh, the UFO fan in me wants to believe that he did witness something, and uh, what that is is I don't know. Maybe maybe it was an experimental craft, but. I don't know. I, I think, you know, here's what I think it could have been. It, not necessarily a, an experimental craft, but one being piloted by humans, uh, maybe a recovered UFO. You know, you, you've heard those conspiracy theories before, those those stories about how, you know, the U.S. government, uh, people claim that, you know, we've found like ancient UFOs that were buried, like, you know, uh, it's like found archaeology, you know, but it's UFOs, you know, or maybe I don't think it'd be like a crashed one or anything like that, because who knows what technology would be used there. And I doubt that we'd be able to reverse engineer and fix it. Although who knows, you know, who knows, you know, but yeah, that's kind of what I, my, my opinion on it. Yeah. I'm kind of right there with you. It's such a strange story and yet we have pretty good physical evidence. So it's hard to believe that he hoaxed this. And this is, I mean, I've seen an awful lot of UFO hoaxes, and this is typically not how people will hoax things, you know? People mm -hmm. will either hoax things via, you know, getting some kind of photograph, or they'll get some sort of artifact or something that they can bring back or something. It's just, it would yeah. be a really they'll, they'll weird to, way to hoax something. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of times when people hoax this type of thing, They'll try to make money off of it later. You know, that's pretty common. Yeah. But it doesn't appear that he tried to. So, I don't know. He, he even said uh, in, a, in an interview, like, later on um, that he regrets, you know, even telling anybody about it just because, like, you know, the, the, the way it affected his life, you know? Yeah. It was, yeah, it was very stressful for his home life. You know, his wife was getting upset with all the attention and it just made things very stressful for everybody, you know? And, like, his kid was getting bullied at school. Mm -hmm. That's not cool, man. It's not his kid's fault, even if he did hoax it or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Don't blame a kid for their parents being weird. It's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that something weird really did happen. I'm leaning more towards that, you know, towards that direction. And it, I don't know. It's hard for me to say that it was something built by us because like I said, in the sixties, we didn't have anything that we could build that was, you know, as smooth as glass and glowed red while it was flying, didn't have any apparent flight control surfaces and could have a door that would close seamlessly. You know, we just, uh -huh. we didn't have anything like that then. And I'm, I don't know that we have anything like that now. I don't think we do, you know? So I think that he really did see something. Either it was extraterrestrial or like ETA said, it was a borrowed craft that we somehow recovered from some other technology. Hell, maybe it was even an ancient civilization that disappeared somehow and we dug it up somewhere, you know? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Anything's possible. I mean, look at, we've talked about this before on the show, but look at how quickly we've advanced. Once we hit a certain point of technology and a certain point of scientific discovery, like let's just say early 20th century, and then we just went ahead we discovered more scientifically, and I don't know about actual science, but more stuff that we could turn into actual stuff like cell phones and airplanes, video game machines, whatever. Our our understanding went, went ahead by leaps and bounds so quickly starting in the 20th century that, you know, after a hundred years, we, you know, we did all kinds of crazy stuff. We went to the moon. We built new, we split the atom, you know, like in the forties, we split the atom. Yeah. It's insane. And then, you know, like I just read an article recently that they're developing now, they're developing fusion uh, reactors for power generation. And they think that they're going to have fusion power within the next 10 years, which is, I mean, this has hmm. been a pipe dream my whole life. They've been talking about this and uh, I'm not going to tell you how old I am because don't worry about it. But I mean, long enough. Okay. Just long enough. That's all you need to know. <laughs> but I mean, that's like, that's like the Holy grail. That's like as close to free energy as we're going to get in my lifetime anyways. And it's happening. Yeah. It used to be science fiction. And just, so just for anybody unfamiliar with um, the terminology, uh, fusion 
is how the sun generates power when you're fusing two atoms together to make a larger molecule, right? So you two, two hydrogen makes a helium or whatever it is, you know, you're fusing two atoms together to make a bigger atom, essentially. Whereas fission is what we do now. We already know how to do fission, F-I-S-S-I-O-N. That's when you're splitting the atom, right? And fission power is very, <laughs> very dirty. Lots of toxic waste. It's, it's bad. You know, lots of pollution, lots of toxic waste, meltdowns left and right all over the place. You know, we're still dealing with Fukushima and Japan, that kind of stuff, right? Apparently, fusion... Now, I don't know if this is true, but from what I've read, fusion power doesn't generate toxic waste or radioactive waste the same way that fission does. So it'll be a lot cleaner, a lot safer, and a lot easier to do without having these horrible meltdowns. That's what I read. I don't know if that's true. I'm not a scientist or an engineer. So if anybody listening, if I'm wrong about that, please correct me and I'll be more than happy to update this. But that's what I heard. But anyways, the point being that if our race is at least 200,000 years old, it's entirely possible that 150,000 years ago, we had a breakaway civilization that discovered some science. And over a period of two or 3,000 years, they did stuff. Maybe they killed themselves off or maybe they left the planet and went elsewhere. And then things sort of reset. And now we're back to square one and we're discovering the same things over again. I mean, it's really fun to entertain these things. Of course, there's no proof of it, but it's hard, like I've said before on this show, it's hard for me to believe that we were biologically the same for 200,000 years and we banged rocks together and didn't discover mm -hmm. anything until a few hundred years ago, essentially. You know, it's hard for me to believe Absolutely. that. A few hundred, I few thousand. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, if our cranial, uh, cranial capacity has been the same and we've, you know, had the, the potential for the same IQ levels and stuff, there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't have uh, gone through, you know, different advancements. You know, maybe it could have also been like, you know, a, a different type of direction as far as our advancement goes, you know, as far as like the technologies that we're, we were uh, creating, you know. But I, th I think I, I, I agree 100% with uh, what you just said. And, and I also agree with like people like, like Graham Hancock, for example. And we've talked about this on the show before, but I think it's totally reasonable to, to assume that maybe we've made advancements and like, you know, to use the words of Graham Hancock, we've had to, uh, you know, be reborn again, you know, as children, as far as our advancement goes in uh, culturally or, or scientifically, whatever, because of uh, great catastrophes. Now, to me, that makes a lot of sense. You know, because also if like, say, for instance, like, you know, a, a meteorite strike or something like that happened, you know, and especially like, uh, well, I mean, we know that that, that did happen, um, I believe, at the end of the, the last ice age, the Younger Dryas era. We, we know that that happened. We know that there were meteors uh, that, uh, that impacted the North American ice sheet. And as big as that ice sheet was supposed to have been at that time, I mean, if there was like, you know, floods that happened because of that, and it appears there was, that would wipe pretty much any evidence off the face of the earth of a civilization that was there, you know? So I think it's reasonable to assume that it's, it's quite possible, you know? Yeah. I think there is a little bit of evidence here and there, you know, around the world, especially with megalithic structures that like, yeah, some people say that they, you know, for example, just for example, you know, like uh, some of the megalithic structures in, in Peru and, and around South America, too. Uh, we don't necessarily know for sure. We know some of them were definitely made by the Inca and also looks looks like they uh, were restored by the Inca. But we don't know for sure who originally built those those structures because there, there is a definite difference uh, in uh, different types of construction that you can see present in the in those those buildings and megalithic structures. So it definitely doesn't appear it was built by the same people, you know, not originally. Well, I mean, originally, obviously, is one one civilization, but there's there, you know, there's different levels of sophistication, and the oldest, you know, parts of these structures always seem to be the most refined, and uh, using especially like the largest uh, like building blocks, I guess you could say, you know. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a very very interesting topic. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. I'm sure we'll get around to another, you know, ancient type episode at some point or other. It'll come around. But it's Oh yeah. 
it's one of the things about those topics that's sort of fun and frustrating at the same time is that there's very little information to go on. It's a lot of speculation, which can be fun. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, you know, like Gobekli Tepe, for example, we did an episode on that. That was like our third episode, I think. And, um, like there's, there's artwork, right. And they interpret the artwork people, you know, archeologists or whatever they say, oh yeah, this artwork means this, it means that, and this and that and the other. They have no idea what it means. They're just kind of making it up, you yeah. know? <laughs> They're saying, ah, oh, well. Yeah, you really don't know. This this symbol here is symbolic for the soul, and this is symbolic for whatever, the soul rising and whatever. It's like, but they don't know that. They have no idea. It could be, mm-hmm. it could be anything. It could be literally anything. It could be like their version of soccer. That's what they're depicting. Like, there's no way to know, you know? Without yeah. with, without actually having a time machine and going back, I suppose, or find, uncovering new evidence. Yeah. There's lots of uh, sites at Gobekli Tepe that are still buried. They have not uncovered all of those. So maybe- Oh, the vast majority. Yeah. Maybe they'll uncover something. I don't know. Maybe they're not. I don't know if they're still trying to uncover stuff or not, but maybe they'll make further discoveries that will shed some light on what all, all that is. It's very mysterious. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up for this week's episode. That's about all we got for you this time. Thank you so much for listening. And can I get a keep it strange, Asian ETA? Keep it strange. <laughs>